You're listening to 3CR. We really are in unprecedented times and 3CR, as your local community broadcaster, is trying to do our part to minimise the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable, but we are still here. And we'll continue broadcasting 24 hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period, but things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe, and be kind to each other. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. And you are on 3CR. And in the midst of COVID-19, we're taking a moment to pause, reflect, and take another look at issues that concerned us last year, and into 2020. Today, we're looking at the influence of religion on Australian policy, in particular, US-style conservative Christianity. I'm Judith Peppard, and I'll be presenting three interviews that address that question. Later, I'll be looking at the hue and cry that accompanied the New South Wales government's efforts to remove abortion from the criminal code last year. Before that, we'll hear from Tim O'Connor about Amnesty International's response to the first exposure drafts of the federal government's religious freedom bills, released in August last year. But first, I'm speaking with Professor Philip Amund about prayer as public policy. Philip is a professor emeritus at the University of Queensland, and he's a historian of religious thought. His paper, Thoughts and Prayers, Miracles, Christianity and Praying for Rain, published in the conversation in August last year, caught my attention, particularly as the drought was a major concern at the time. In that paper, he says, it appears that prayer has become part of government public policy. So I began by asking him why. I'm very conscious of the fact, and have been for a while as we all are, that Prime Minister Scott Morrison is perhaps our first Pentecostal card-carrying Christian Prime Minister. And the second thing to say there is that as a consequence of his bringing uh, the media into his church during the election campaign, he has put his own religious faith on the public agenda. Generally, prime ministers keep their religious beliefs a little bit private, but Scott Morrison has made that a central part of his public persona, going right through now to talking as a Prime Minister about encouraging those who, like him, believe in the power of prayer to pray for rain, to bring about an end to the drought. To say it's public policy, that's a pretty big claim. Yeah, it's a big claim in the sense that I'm not sure that there is, you know, in the in the Liberal Party's policy statements, uh, among other things, to do for climate change at the top of this public prayer. So it's not government policy in that strict sense. But I think the important point is that Scott Morrison has put his religious belief and the encouragement for Australians to engage in religious activities like petitionary prayer right out there up front as a firm statement of how he thinks of himself as the Prime Minister of Australia. You just mentioned the term petitionary prayer. Obviously, as a scholar of religion, you tease out what some of these things mean. Well, petitionary prayer is one of the, the standard forms of prayer within Christianity as a whole. Petitionary prayer essentially is asking God to do certain kinds of things. And it has the form, God, give me X, or God, if it be thy will, do this rather than something else. So praying for rain is a very uh, clear example of 
the tradition of petitionary prayer within the Christian tradition generally. This has the specific form of a request for God to do something, and more specifically, to, uh, to interfere in the natural world. God bring rain is clearly a request for God to intervene into the natural course of things and change the natural course of things. The other term that you discuss in your paper is miracle. You mentioned that in the more conservative branches of Protestantism, miracles continue to be believed in, not uh, via saintly mediators, but through mm-hmm. the direct intervention of God in response to the prayer and fasting of the faithful. Exactly. Within the Roman Catholic tradition, and this week is particularly important in that tradition because Cardinal John Henry Newman has just become a saint. And in the Catholic tradition, that comes about as a result of the Church being convinced that God has intervened as a consequence of people praying to Henry Newman. So we've got a very clear case there of, in the Catholic tradition still, of God doing miracles via saintly people. Within the Protestant tradition, it's, it's people gathering together and praying and fasting in the hope that God will take notice and do what they would hope. Now, you've mentioned in your paper a group that I hadn't heard of, the, the Conservative Canberra Declaration Group, mm. and it's declared this October a month of prayer and fasting for rain. That's right. And every day there's a, there's a new prayer that goes up on the website and a new statement of, around that particular space. And in the case of the Canberra Declaration Group, which is essentially a group of conservative Protestants, they're coming out of the very strongly Protestant tradition, which says two things. One, it may well be the case that the drought is the consequence of the sinfulness of Australians. Therefore, we must repent from our sins and start doing the right thing rather than the wrong thing. And secondly, were we to do that then God may well bring both spiritual rain upon our souls and physical rain upon the earth. And how influential is the Canberra Declaration Group? Yes, that's really difficult to say, Judith. I don't have any, any strong sense of how influential they are. They're clearly a kind of lobby group. I suspect they're spinning out of the Australian Christian churches, which is part of the Pentecostal tradition, but it's very difficult to get any firm information on who they are. And if you've just joined us on 3CR, I'm speaking with Professor Philip Armand from the University of Queensland, a historian of religious thought. Now, I had another question for Philip Armand. You posed the question in your paper, can God help? And what's your response? What's my answer to that? Yes. (laughs) We could say something like this. Philosophically, there's no reason why he couldn't. So God could intervene in the natural order of things to bring about rain, for the sake of argument. Uh, The next question is, if he could, would he do so? Let's say that, you know, in certain circumstances, he decides to do us a favor and intervene and bring rain. Uh, should he do so? Well, that's another question. Yes. And my, my asking, should he do so, he might well think, well, it's not up to me to solve your drought problems or your climate change problems. You messed it up. That's a slightly frivolous thing to say. But you might say that within the Christian tradition at the moment, there's that sort of theology which says, all we need to do is to repent and pray a lot and not eat breakfast and all will come good in the final analysis and God will bring rain. And there's another kind of Christian theology which says the only way in which we can sort out climate change is to act responsibly as Christians 
whom God has made responsible for creation and become activists about climate change. In other words, our God-given responsibility is to sort this out ourselves and not merely hope that God will do it for us. There are many Christians who have been actively involved in climate change and arguing for climate change. Absolutely true. I mean, climate change activism... You know, things like environmental theology and eco-theology very much on the more liberal Christian agenda at the moment. They're not particularly on the conservative Christian agenda, although that's not to say that there aren't conservative Christians who are out there being environmentally active. The broad issue in here is really the conflict between a pacifism about the drought and so a pacifism that goes to praying that rain will come and a kind of endorsement of the fact that there is a connection between the drought and climate change and therefore the responsibility upon politicians, whether they're Christians or not, to actually start to get serious about having a proper environmental policy. And indeed we do. That was Professor Philip Armand from the University of Queensland. You're on 3CR 855 AM on your dial and uh, streaming live. Great to have your company. We're going to hear from Nakane now, a fabulous South African performer with Interloper. When lost, did go to Bacchanalia? He seems to have seen you there. You know the one who puts me in hysteria and makes me behave like a curse.
Kanane with Interloper. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Last year, Federal Attorney General Christian Porter released a draft package of religious freedom bills. The draft bills were a response to inquiries into the protection of religious freedom under Australian law, developed to implement some of the recommendations of the Expert Panel on Religious Freedom, also known as the Ruddock Review. It was the Religious Discrimination Bill within that suite of bills that attracted the most attention and concern. Civil society groups representing women, LBGTIQ plus people, people of colour, condemned the draft Religious Discrimination Bill. And Amnesty International described it as taking Australia back to the dark ages. Tim O'Connor spoke with me in September last year, and I began by asking him if Amnesty was surprised by the contents of the draft bills. Well, it's extremely surprising. Obviously, this has been very divisive right from the very beginning for many people in our community. Particularly, we, we were incredibly surprised and shocked to see that it targets you know, some of the, the most vulnerable uh, members of our community, vilifying women, LGBTQI plus people, people of colour, and others who, who may be minorities uh, in the community. You do say it's a license for religious groups to use their beliefs to condemn and attack groups and communities, such as the groups you just mentioned. Why is that? How does that do that? It really puts the right of religious discrimination, which shouldn't be a right in the first place, uh, and puts it above other rights. And, you know, th- this is a missed opportunity because what, we're trying, what we need to see in Australia is a Human Rights Act. A Human Rights Act would actually ensure that we have a legislative mechanism to balance all of our rights. We wouldn't see the sorts of issues we've had with the hate speech of people like Israel Folau, which has really engendered much of this, you know, what we see as fairly shocking bill. What's the background to this bill? Like, where did it come from? Well, it's been kicking around for a, a long time. The Prime Minister, in before the previous election, got Philip Ruddick, who many may remember as a former immigration minister, um, to conduct uh, a review and so they've taken the findings of that review, uh, which remains secret. That was a review of religious freedom. That's correct, yeah. yes. And that review then has been taken and they've released this draft disclosure bill um, just now. But it's, it's been an issue. And I guess the, you know, the interesting thing from our perspective is that this has been criticised right across the board. There's religious groups who are very concerned about it. You know, groups like Amnesty sit firmly in the centre of these debates. And as, as an international organisation, I guess Amnesty has seen this sort of thing in other countries. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I guess the, the challenge here, with Australia being the only Western democracy that, uh, without a Bill of Rights, uh, you know, again points to, to the, the failure of this bill. What we need to ensure, instead of a spaghetti bowl of legislation that we have now, where it's incredibly difficult to disentangle, we need a very clear Human Rights Act or a Human Rights Charter to establish all of those rights and how we balance those rights between them and legislative mechanisms to do so. It's not it's not beyond Australia to have a Human Rights Act. Obviously, we've seen leadership from um, states like Victoria. Uh, the ACT has also come on board. And recently, Queensland has also instituted a Human Rights Act. It's something that we need to actually deal with federally. Yes, and I think that's been on the cards for many, many years. I mean, I think we can go back to the 80s almost. It was, I think, Labour Party policy at one stage. Yeah, it 
has been policy of various governments at different times, unfortunately, when they've usually been in opposition, uh, from our view. But what we've seen with the leadership of the states is that the Bill of Rights is coming, and this is an opportunity for the government to get in front of that, to ensure that we don't have religious discrimination, which you know, no society should have that. You should be free to practice your religion, or if you aren't religious, to not practice your religion. What this bill does doesn't deal with any of those specific issues, and certainly doesn't give us a way to balance the rights of discrimination and hate speech against practicing that religion. What will this bill allow? I mean, what will it permit? There's many steps that it needs to go through. But, you know, the, the key impediment we see is really that it, that it vilifies, you know, specific groups in the community or certainly opens the opportunity to vilify some of those groups. And I really see. we need to be protecting the rights of, of, of vulnerable groups or potentially vulnerable groups of minorities. And this bill doesn't go any, any way to actually addressing that problem. Yes, and you've already touched on this, but how does it compare with other democracies, for example? Australia is the only Western democracy in the world. I mean, the only Western democracy. We're an absolute laggard here in not having a Bill of Rights or equivalent. This is a, it's a missed opportunity because it really is going to add to that spaghetti bowl of legislation that exists and not really give anyone any clear indication of how they should be free to practice their religion, which ultimately should be a, a, you know, a tenant of every society, to practice your religion or not to practice if you aren't religious. Yes. Uh, and this bill doesn't go any way at all to addressing that concern. So it's even misnamed in a way from, from what you were saying. Uh, it's not about well, freedom it, it, it at is, all. It is, it is certainly uh, could be read as being very Orwellian. Yes. And uh, so it kind of brings Australia in line with other totalitarian regimes, perhaps. <laughs> well, I think... Or, is, or am I uh, am I stretching it a bit too far there? But you could be you could be stretching it a little bit far there. But I guess the ambition of this bill is to ensure that people are free to practice their religion. Amnesty, of course, has no problem with that. Um, people should be free to practice their religion, but in doing so, they are not free to discriminate. Yes. And should a religious institution not employ someone or sack someone because of their religious or non-religious affiliation, uh, that would be a huge shame. And it's not clear in this bill whether that will actually be protected. Yes, and I think there's also been criticisms about the process for which it's going to go to Parliament. There's going to be a fairly short time for it to be debated. Well, yeah, it does look like it. I mean, it's something that has kicked around for a long time. The government has been very secretive about it. They've, they've snuck it out now, and their plan is to push it through. We understand the bill will be referred to committee, and we'll have to go through that process where people have the opportunity to, to provide responses to it amendments to it. But ultimately, this bill shouldn't be amended. It should be shelved. We should be looking at a, a Human Rights Act uh, that ensures that every Australian has all of their rights protected. Yes. And I guess coming in right after the postal vote on you know, or marriage equality, it, it seems almost like it's set up to take away from what was gained through that vote. Well, I, I certainly think this bill needs to be seen in the context of that very divisive process that the Australian community was forced to go through had a profound impact on many people. I know, I'm sure, many yes. potential listeners also were very divided by the debate that occurred around that and personally vilified, attacked. Um, that's not the community we want. That's what a Human Rights Act does. It makes clear what all of our rights and our responsibilities are. And that's why we need one from Australia. Tim O'Connor, spokesperson for Amnesty International on the draft Religious Freedom Bills, released by the Federal Attorney General Christian Porter in August last year. Now, Tim O'Connor was speaking about what's called the first exposure draft of the Religious Freedom Bills. The second exposure draft of these bills was released in December last year, but they didn't really address the concerns raised by Amnesty International and others. And in fact, many people thought the new draft was worse than the first one. Simon Rice is a professor at Sydney Law School, and he commented 
on the second exposure draft in an article in February this year in The Conversation saying that the bill turns discrimination protection on its head. It doesn't merely protect a person from being discriminated against because of their religious beliefs. It allows a person to actively discriminate on the basis of their religious beliefs. And as he points out, this is not the usual right to be treated the same that our other discrimination laws guarantee. It's a right to mistreat others. It is a right to cause harm in the name of religious freedom. If you're interested in finding out more, you can just Google Professor Simon Rice and the conversation, and you could add religious freedom bill. You'll get a fuller account of some of the problems. And so that was written in February this year, and I think COVID-19 has kind of pushed that conversation off the agenda for the moment, but it's just one more thing to keep an eye on in the middle of all the other things that are going on right now. I'm Judith Peppard. Great to have you with us here on 3CR today, and uh, hope you're finding it interesting. Coming up next, we'll be looking at the decriminalization of abortion in New South Wales in October 2019. And by that, I mean taking abortion out of the 119-year-old criminal code and regulating it as a medical procedure. But before that, we're going to hear from Sampa the Great with Freedom. Searching for my home. 
COVID-19 is a sickness that can spread from person to person. It can be dangerous, especially for our elders or people who are already unwell. We can all help stop the spread in our communities. Cover a cough with the inside of your elbow instead of your hand. Wash your hands with soap for at least 20 seconds after you cough or sneeze. Go to the toilet and before you make any food. Keep away from people who are sick, coughing or sneezing. Avoid going to places where there are lots of people. At this time, it is best to stay at home and away from other people as much as we can. If you're feeling unwell, have a fever, cough or sore throat, or worried about someone else, phone your doctor, clinic or medical service right away for advice. It is important to stay connected and strong as a community and keep our mob safe. Visit health.gov.au or your local health service for more information. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. And you are on 3CR. During the show, we've been looking at the influence, particularly of the US Christian right, on politics here in Australia and on policy. So the last example we're going to look at is what happened in New South Wales when the government moved to take abortion out of the criminal code. Now, taking abortion out of the 119-year-old criminal code and regulating it as a medical practice in New South Wales should have been fairly straightforward. But the vote on the bill in the upper house was delayed by threats from the extreme right of the Liberal Party, some of whom were going to challenge the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian's leadership. Now, while this threat was short-lived, it is interesting that the Premier was not present for the vote. Running the business of the state, she said. But what did the bill do, and why was it delayed? I spoke with Dr. Prudence Flowers from Flinders University in August last year. Prudence is a historian interested in abortion and family planning, both as elements of health care, but also as triggers for polarizing social movement formation. I began by asking what proportion of people in New South Wales supported the decriminalization of abortion. It's a very high proportion, Judith. In a very recent survey conducted around the current kind of decriminalisation moment, New South Wales residents indicated that 73% of respondents supported full decriminalisation. And a poll a few years ago when decriminalisation was also being discussed actually had higher rates of pro-choice support. So in that 2015 poll, it indicated 87% of respondents believed a woman should be able to have an abortion and only 6% opposed abortion in all circumstances. And those New South Wales polls are completely in line with a really long polling history of Australia more broadly, where there is fairly consistent, steady and deep public support for abortion rights for women. New South Wales, is is it one of the last states to decriminalise abortion in Australia? It is one of the last states. It's South Australia and New South Wales, which are the two states in which abortion still remains in the criminal law. It seems a bit odd that there's such a protest going on in New South Wales about this new legislation, which will just bring New South Wales in line with other states. It is odd. Probably the depth of sentiment in New South Wales at the moment comes from both the fact that there are several leading federal former or current politicians who oppose abortion, and so they're intervening in this debate. But New South Wales is also coming in kind of a trajectory of decriminalisation measures, where we're seeing the influence of particularly US movements against abortion, is the way in which politicians approach decriminalisation. In New South Wales, there have been an array of amendments proposed, most of which didn't get up in the lower house, but they really reflect concerns that 
have originated in the United States and then have been kind of exported outside. What is significant in the New South Wales case is that they are supposedly indicating that they're willing to consider an amendment that would prohibit abortion on the grounds of sex selection, which is a US strategy. What does that mean, Prudence, sex selection? What they mean is someone who goes to a doctor and finds out that they're having a baby that is a certain sex and then they choose to terminate because it is that sex. They're referring to the preference in some immigrant communities for boy children. So this is a strategy originated in the US in the 2000s and it was part of a broader strategy that was attempting to present abortion as an act of discrimination. The idea that there's this problem with sex-selective abortions has spread more broadly. So in the UK in the 2010s, there was a lot of national, I'm going to call it hysteria, around a supposed epidemic of sex-selective abortions and this was really pushed by the tabloid media. What evidence is there, say, in Australia that this is going on? at all? There is not evidence. In fact, today, the New Daily published a really great article talking about the fact that the evidentiary basis that people in New South Wales are using, they're misinterpreting and misrepresenting what it actually says. So a few years ago, there was a large study conducted by Latrobe about not sex-selective abortion, but about gender discrepancies in birth. And it did note that in amongst some communities or some immigrant communities or ethnic communities, there were discrepancies between the number of boys and girls born over a certain kind of period, but they didn't attribute that to sex-selective abortion. And in fact, they were quite careful to say that that could come from a number of factors, one of which could have been IVF. So there's not evidence. So to a certain extent, I think a lot of this is a manufactured fear and I think it's significant that it was brought up in Queensland but didn't gain traction there. It's been brought up in South Australia. This is part of a kind of strategy and I think it's important for people to realise that it's not describing reality. So how does the New South Wales bill to decriminalise abortion compare with legislation in comparable Western countries? I guess I would call it fairly moderate or even fairly conservative. So New South Wales has modelled its bill pretty closely on the Queensland decriminalisation bill from last year. And one of the things that I think is important to note, given all the sort of misinformation about what New South Wales is proposing, um, is that it has a gestation limit of up to 22 weeks. So women can seek abortion up to 22 weeks they can access abortion after that if two independent doctors approve. So that's something that people like Barnaby Joyce, uh, people like Tony Abbott, uh, people like both the Catholic and the Anglican archbishops in New South Wales have claimed means abortion is available up to birth. And they've used, I would say, Donald Trump-esque language to describe what the bill is permitting. And that's simply not accurate. There's all kinds of medical guidelines and codes about when doctors can ethically perform procedures and for people to be seeking terminations after 22 weeks. In the majority of cases, that's for reasons of severe fetal anomaly. And we know that from all kinds of data from across the Western world. And the other reason why women or pregnant people seek terminations after 22 weeks is because of often really complex and difficult personal social circumstances that might include things like drug and alcohol addiction, domestic violence, homeless. It's often people in the most difficult situations who are the most vulnerable who seek terminations after 20 weeks. In terms of where they sit in relation to other countries, the New South Wales and Queensland bill are both proposing something that is has a lower cutoff than Victoria, which passed its legislation in 2008. It's a lower cutoff than what's in place in the ACT. But in terms of places outside Australia, the UK allows terminations up to 24 weeks 
and it has provisions to allow access after that point for reasons of fetal anomaly or risk to the mother. In the US, the big Supreme Court case that covers this is Roe v. Wade, and that doesn't allow outright bans on abortion before fetal viability, which is seen as 24 to 28 weeks. Canada doesn't have any upper gestation limits on abortion. So, you know, what New South Wales is proposing is not this kind of radical and extreme measure. It is in some ways more conservative than a lot of what is out there in the kind of comparable Western world. Dr. Prue Flowers from Flinders University. And uh, I spoke to her in August last year, around the time that everything was heating up in New South Wales. But I was wondering how much the activism we're seeing is imported from the U.S. We've seen some interesting examples of U.S. interest in our state. And clearly this is coming from opponents of abortion in South Australia reaching out to U.S. allies. So during April, when there's nationwide in the capital cities a big anti-abortion clinic protest event, which is called 40 Days for Life, South Australian opponents of abortion brought out the chair of 40 Days for Life from Texas, and they brought out some other anti-abortion activists from the US as well, and brought them to Parliament to talk with political opponents of the decriminalisation bill. So that's not a hidden thing. There are photos of those US right to lifers on the floor of the SA Parliament with certain SA politicians. There have historically always been connections in Sydney and in Melbourne with the US right to life movement, but those have tended to be more group to group rather than politicians bringing out and engaging with right to life activists. So historically, there's the Australian Right to Life Federation and then there's Right to Life Australia, which are based on the East Coast. And they have consistently brought out leading right to life opponents of abortion over the decades. What is interesting to me is that they seem to have sought out people that are kind of on the extreme end of US abortion politics. They're the people who are seen as really being able to galvanise others. So they've brought out people like Father Paul Mark, a really internationally influential, what we call an absolutist. So he opposes abortion in every instance, including to save the life of the mother. They've brought out a man called Joseph Scheidler, who is actually the kind of godfather of the type of clinic protests that are now normal with what they call sidewalk counselling. He began all of that in the 70s. A few years ago, they tried to bring out an incredibly controversial activist called Troy Newman from a group called Operation Rescue. Troy Newman had his visa cancelled and was deported because in some of his writing, he had questioned why abortion doctors are not executed. And some of the people who work for that group have tried to kill abortion doctors in the past. This so, is in know, the United States. Yeah, in the, sorry, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So part of that is that these people are seen as inspiring figures. Australian right to lifers do seem to be drawn to what I would see as the far edges of the US right Which is a kind of incredible given mm. Australia's history of supporting abortion mm. reform and of course this would not be the only issue right to life would be active on. Australian right to lifers are, are also very interested in things like euthanasia and also IVF. Because abortion has not been as much of a political issue here, I think they've directed their energies, more diverse targets. As a social movement, they're a very small phenomenon. There are people who regularly protest, but these are relatively small groups. What they do have are kind of allies, particularly at the federal level, and I think that amplifies their views. And that was Dr. Prudence Flowers from Flinders University, a historian interested in abortion and family planning. I'm Judith Peppard, and a big thank you for tuning in this morning to 3CR, and do stay tuned. All the best. Take care. Wash your hands, as they say. Look after yourself. And right now we're going to hear Spirit Bird by Xavier Rudd. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. My name's Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective. I've been charged with incitement under the 1958 Crimes Act for helping to organise a safe car convoy protest calling for the release of the refugees at the Mantra Hotel and across Australia because of the risk of COVID-19. Labor MPs Jed Carney and Peter Khalil have called for the release of the refugees in the Mantra Hotel and Jed Carney sent us an audio message supporting the goals of the protest. 26 refugee supporters have been issued fines of $1,652 each, making a total of $43,000 in fines. We'll be challenging the fines and the incitement charge in court and we need your help. We've got a sign-on statement, a petition, a fundraising campaign for our legal defence and a public meeting with Craig Foster, Mosford Manus, Julian Burnside and myself on Monday the 4th of May at 6.30pm. You can go to rack-vic.org or facebook forward slash rackvic for more information. Your solidarity can make a difference for both civil liberties and the urgent campaign to free the refugees. A 3CR supporter. Whether it's with new content made DIY at home or with repeats of awesome shows, 3CR is with you, keeping you company through thick and thin. So don't touch that dial. 3CR, here to stay. Hello, my name is Fiona York. I'm involved with the Centre for Rural Communities, an organisation that started about 25 years ago, uh, working towards social and economic um, and environmentally sustainable development of rural communities. It's based in East Gippsland, which many listeners will know was devastated by a catastrophic bushfire a couple of months ago. Um, And here we are, less than three months later, dealing with another disaster, the global coronavirus pandemic. So it got me thinking about disaster um, and survival and what makes people and places better able to cope and what do we need to learn from each other as we try to deal with all of these events as they come one after the other. I live in Melbourne now but I lived in East Gippsland for about 18 years and I still feel very connected to the place and I know um, from talking to people out there and visiting there often um, that there's so many good innovative, interesting things that are happening in rural communities. Um, And I wanted to bring some of these stories to the 3CR audience to maybe start or to continue the discussions that people are having in these small, little isolated places all over the place. So over the next little while, we're hoping to bring some stories to you from East Gippsland, um, stories about reconciliation, Um, community building and arts-led economic recovery, as well as the beautiful environment outside the city, which East Gippsland is so famous for, because there's some really great stuff happening out there and I thought maybe some people would like to hear about it. 
Um, I'm not sure exactly how this is going to unfold. We're hoping to get some stories through um, over the next little while from people who live in East Gippsland. But in the meantime, I'm going to start with some of the people that I recorded a couple of years ago at a little festival um, called Fruitville. So fruit, which is spelt F-R-O-U-T-E, F-Root, pronounced fruit, um, began in East Gippsland a few years ago as a project which was producing art related to fruit. And since then, it's grown to this whole movement and it's sparked so many amazing things, um, bringing people together, creating and healing and learning from each other. Um, And probably the most famous, well-known part of that fruit movement is Fruitville, which is a little festival that happens every couple of years. So the people that you're about to hear um, were recorded at that festival at the Nicholson Winery on the grass, um, overlooking the beautiful Nicholson River, surrounded by grapevines. Um, so let's have a listen. At the moment I'm stewing fruit for Bracky, just chopping it up as we need it, and a little bit later I'll be making some jam. But I was going to do some fig jam, but the poached figs were so popular that I've kind of used most of them up. We just moved into a new property in Bairnsdale and it had two massive big fig trees and I, I don't know, one day I woke up and I realised I could cook with them and I could eat them and I could have figs every single day and that's when I realised kind of what it was all about and that people, other people had trees that they didn't use and I could go and start using their fruit. So it became all about discovering fruit and learning new ways to cook with fruit I hadn't heard of and then coming and seeing all my new friends and eating fruit. (laughs) So this is our fruit scene. People have sent recipes for cakes in from all over Gippsland. I made most of the cakes myself and I just took photos of them and put it together in a little format and I've got some helpers over there right now who are actually cutting and pasting and sticking them all together so we can sell them. But there's a hummingbird cake over there that was supplied by Nina Petrie from Lake Centrance and she's supplied the recipe for the zine and she also brought the cake today. So whereabouts are these oranges from? They're from my garden. Yeah? Yeah, I brought them in this morning. Picked them this morning and um, when I got here and saw how much fruit there was, I was going, you know what, these are really nicely uh, squeezed and drunk. They're really lovely. I've got a lot of lemons too. And um, I've been trying to get inventive with lemon rinds. Like, what can you do with all this rind? If you're going to juice them, what do you do with all the rinds? So I made... um, Lemon rind candy, which I forgot to bring. I was going to bring some more. Oh, that sounds good. Let's see how much. Oh, that's not bad. It's a bit chewy. Would you like some? Absolutely. <laughs> but orange juice should be chewy. <laughs> I was coming here this morning at home in the hills. It was 10 degrees and I was reminded 
of the cold morning, six o'clock, 20 or more years ago, here in the vineyards, picking grapes. And I wanted to go here since years, because they always welcome me. And I thought, this is amazing that they have to throw a big thing here to lure me here physically. So I was here and I was straight away overwhelmed. There were people from 30 years ago from the yoga classes that I ran. There are children who have become young adults. They all recognize me, but I don't recognize such things anymore because I really forgot to expose myself. And I, I had trouble controlling my emotions. This is uh, an exhibition of life. Yeah. I get a feeling here, it's all there. But I cut myself off the community. And um, maybe I've learned a lesson today. I'm not shaking anymore. And I had very warm hugs and friendliness, and I'm just a friendly person. But you see, I'm not young anymore. Not too far away, I will be 80, and, and then living alone since 20 years, that is good. But the body is slowly giving in now, you know? But that doesn't mean as long as I can walk, get into the car, I can go. It's just you get, you get a little bit lazy too. I get too critical with what is running generally in life. But this is life too. And this could be the big lesson. Yeah. You know? Yeah. this but life isn't just about surviving and one of the things that people do around here really well is creating something out of very little that celebration um, aspect of, of fruit is is one of the things that I think makes it really interesting and that I like using the word grassroots um, that it is it's bubbling up it's welling up from the material is the people. The material is the lives that people lead, the um, food that they grow, the places that they live, and the conversations that they have around that. That's actually the material of the art. Okay, so that was a little taster from Fruitville. There was quite a bit of ambient noise in the background there. I hope that wasn't. I hope that was okay for you guys. Um, we heard from quite a few people there. Uh, the first person we heard from was Jesse Johns, who was making um, some fig jam and some zines. Um, she's a local East Gippsland artist. There was also Catherine Cunningham making some orange juice and. Um, Sam McElroy, who lives in Tassie now, was the last person that you heard from. Um, and Ula in the middle there, who had a real personal awakening um, at that festival. Um, fortunately, she lost her home in the fires just a couple of months ago. Um, so, yeah, Fruitville happened again this year, just a couple of weeks ago before the lockdown. Um, and this time it was at Clifton Creek which was absolutely devastated by the fires. They lost their primary school and there's a lot of really traumatised people. But I was there and it was really great to see 
at the festival how this event really bringing people together um, and it's such an important thing for communities um, to be coming together at this time um, and to rebuild after such a huge disaster. So I hope you enjoyed listening to that. Hopefully we'll be able to bring you some more stories from East Gippsland and other rural communities um, in the coming little while. Um, But yeah, until then, stay safe. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. These are weird days. Many of my days are weird days, actually, but these are weirder than most. It can be a bit of a seismic shock to wake to the news of daily tolls here and in other countries, to spend week after week separated from friends and family, hour on hour, of many of us just within our own homes. But through all of this, we are also seeing so much to inspire hope. People are creating incredible networks of mutual aid, Gardens are thriving from all that lockdown attention. We are finding new ways to slow, connect and reflect. Artists are creating, kids are learning differently and activists are imagining and collaborating on new futures beyond this time. And 3CR is continuing to broadcast throughout this coronavirus remotely. Who knows how long this will have us all locked down, but don't let it get you down. Tune in and love up your community. Stay connected. Work for what has to be a better future ahead. Thanks, CR, for staying steady on the waves. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.